The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning and happy spring. My large garden is doing very nicely, by the way. I hope yours is too. My first tulip came up yesterday. And there are daffodils and the cherry tree is blossoming. And, ah, it's really quite amazing. Every year you look in the garden in November and think, oh no, is anything ever going to come up again? And it rains and rains. I live up in the hills. And uh, this morning as we were sitting, I, I heard the ode to joy in the bells. So many people are celebrating Easter today. Other people this week celebrated uh, the equinox. But whatever you are celebrating, it is very nice to see you. It is very nice to be here. Two weeks ago, I was visiting my family in Los Angeles. And it's that time of year when it's actually very clear there. And when you're up in the airplane, you get a tremendous view of the entire valley, all the way from the foothills of Pasadena, where I grew up, down to the ocean. So as I was leaving and we were flying away, I had a window seat. And when it's that clear, I always enjoy just watching from the window the entire time. And at first I thought, oh, isn't this amazing? Oh, look how far you can see. But at some point, I could see both the hills that were coming to the north that was totally unpopulated, just beautiful rolling hills. And at the same time, to the right, the entire Los Angeles Basin. Miles and miles and miles of dun-colored buildings and long, narrow gray strips of roads or freeways. And where the freeways came together, a spider's legs nest of underpasses and overpasses. And I really started to look at it. And a deep sadness came up in me. And I thought, what a mess we have made of this world. And almost immediately the next thought that came up was, well, of course. Because what a mess we have made of dying. How are we supposed to know how to live if we don't know how to die? In our culture and in our time, death is hidden away. We don't want to see it. We don't want our children to see it. And so we have found all these wonderful institutions in which to put the dying and the dead. 
And so it's, it's kind of an odd thing because this weekend many people are celebrating the death of Jesus Christ and today his rebirth. And when you think of it that way, then you also realize that it has something to do with our Buddhist practice, our meditation practice. That in dying, there is also great joy. If you see resurrection as a kind of liberation, freedom from suffering, then the two ideas are not so far apart. And so, true to my Zen training, I am going to talk about dying today. (laughs) Because this is what we do. (laughs) It's all we do. However, it's also a lot about what the Buddha did. And I just wanted to read this one passage from the Pali text, where the Buddha describes to his um, five companions after his great enlightenment, he's describing to them his motivation for uh, seeking the end of suffering. Monks, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, I too, being myself subject to birth, sought what was also subject to birth. Being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought what was also subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. Then I considered thus, why, being myself subject to birth, do I seek what is also subject to birth? Why, being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek what is also subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement? Suppose that being myself subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, I seek the unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Suppose that being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, having understood the danger in what is subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, I seek the unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, and undefiled supreme security from bondage, nirvana. In order for us to understand this passage, which is the core of the Buddha's understanding. We need to be able to witness and be involved with all phases of our life. And that includes dying and death. I read something recently how uh, peace is not a a place or a time or a situation where there is no noise, no confusion, no difficulties. Rather, it is being able to be in the middle of those difficulties with equanimity, 
and calm. So today, I wanted to share a little bit about my own experiences with dying and death in order to encourage all of you to look deeply at that. I don't want you to be in the situation that my own brothers were in when my father died. Because it is often the case, as it was for them, that the first dead body that they saw in their entire life was of someone so close. It is difficult enough to face the death of a loved one without also at the same time dealing with the whole big idea of death. At any time, right now, hundreds of thousands of people are dying. You just don't know them. We don't know them. They're in the hospitals. You know, they're at Sequoia. They're at Stanford. Or they're in hospice. They're in their homes, perhaps. They're in institutions. But they are dying. And then someone in our own family or someone that we know personally dies. And that's a whole other layer. Because it isn't just the actual physical process that we're talking about here. It's the mental and emotional processes that the dying person is going through as well as everyone else who is connected to that person. So I'm going to share three experiences, one very small, the other longer, of my own personal involvement in order to help you understand why I think this is so important to talk about. About 15 years ago, at this school where I teach, Peninsula School, one of our young girls at the age of, I think she was 11 at the time, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. This is very difficult for most adults. Having an older person dying, even somebody after 50, you know, you feel at least they've had a life. But for an 11-year-old to have a brain tumor that you know they're going to die from soon, this just doesn't seem right. But I had a a very enlightened director at the time who happened to know that besides being the librarian of this school, uh, that I also was a Zen monk. And she got this phone call. And one of the very first things she did was she came into the library and said to me, Misha, Diana has been diagnosed with a brain tumor. She's had a grand mal seizure. Her parents are at the hospital, and you need to go. I do? I had never done this before. Yes, I had been ordained for a few years at that point, but I had never done this. I had no hospice training. 
I had no training in how to be at the deathbed. I didn't know if she was dying at that point, but it was possible. What was I going to say? I mean, I knew this little girl, but not that well. But being a good Zen student, I said, okay, and off I went. Now, this is to encourage all of you, because someday this is going to happen to you. Someone's going to say, so-and-so is dying, and you need to go. And you're going to think the same thing I did. I don't know anything about this. What am I supposed to do? And then you arrive at the hospital, and it's even worse than you thought. This particular family, the mother and father, had been divorced for years. And it was not an amicable divorce. You can imagine now how difficult making decisions was going to be. And when I walked in, it was chaos. The mother and the father are arguing with the doctor. The child is in bed, somewhat cognizant now of what's going on and totally bewildered. No one knows what's going to happen next. And then I come. And they look at me like, what are you doing here? Good question. So I explained that the director had told me about this, and I was here to help in any way that I could. And I just stood around for a long time, trying to take in what was happening. And was over by Diana for a while. And the other interesting thing in this case was that I was definitely closer to the mother. I hardly knew the father. And I could see in his eyes, he was sure that I was there as her friend and not as his. He had already figured this out. But I knew that if I was really going to be helpful, it couldn't be that way. So I was thrilled to discover that his car battery had failed. (laughs) And that it was off in some parking lot way far away, and he had no way home. I will take you. I have jumper cables in my car, even. And that was the beginning of our friendship. For two years, Diana was in and out of the hospital. For two years, I spent every Saturday afternoon at her house, whether it was her mother's or her father's, reading to her. Because it was the only thing I could think of to do. But there came a point when finally she entered the hospital and stayed. And this is the part I want to share that's so important. We all think that there are professionals out there who know what to do. They are trained how to be with dying people. They know the right words to say. Not us. We don't know that. So I would arrive at the hospital almost every afternoon after school. And as I have described, a couple people here know this. Um, There were double doors. There was the first door that you entered, and then there was a little anteroom, not very big, not any bigger than one of the bathrooms here. And then there was another door, and that went in to Diana's private room. I'd come to the first door. 
And I would steel myself, yes, you must go in. And I'd open the door, and then I would stand in the ante room. Sometimes for as much as five minutes, struggling with myself. Remember, there's desire, aversion, and delusion or ignorance. Oh, aversion was coming up big time for me. I don't want to go in there. I don't know what to do. What if she's in pain? What if her sister's in there and she doesn't want me in there? What if her parents are in there and they start arguing? What if the nurse or the doctor comes in and they start doing something? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be with this little girl? I don't want to go in there. And then I did. You will feel lots of aversion. You will be worried you don't know what to do. You will be worried you don't know what to say. And this is because we all have some idea that we're supposed to know how to do everything before we actually know how to do it. So I walked through the second door. And just like our practice teaches us, it is always different. Even if it looks the same through that little window, something has changed since the day before. You have changed. The dying person has changed. I still didn't know what to do. But what began to change over the last six months? I started having faith in the Dharma. And the Dharma is nothing more than responding to what's in front of you. What is? I've often said that the measurement of suffering is what we want and what actually is. Whatever that distance is, there's your suffering. And what I wanted was for it to be easy, to be understandable, to have some certainty. And what is? There's no certainty in dying. There's no knowledge there. Professionals will tell you there's nothing they know that you do not know. Except they know that the moment itself will teach them what to do. So the first time that I was with Diana and they had to do a procedure on her, they had installed a stent above her heart. It gets raw after a while, having an opening in your body that someone's constantly connecting tubes to. And it was painful. It was less painful than if they'd had to stick her with a needle every time, but it was not pleasant. And the first time, I think there were two nurses and a doctor, or maybe, and maybe a nurse practitioner. So it's like four people, and they let me stay as long as I stayed out of the way. Now I could see that Diana, just watching them come in, by this time she couldn't speak very easily. Just watching them come in, I could see her little eyes get big and and the fear. 
And I thought, oh dear, we have to do something to keep her distracted from that. Have her be mindful and pay attention to something else. What can I do? Well, it was something pretty silly, but it worked. I stood near her head, and I put my lips right down by her ear, and I sang to her stupid things. Any lullaby I could remember, little Judy Collins songs, anything I could remember all the words to that was sweet and soothing, I sang to her. And she listened. It didn't mean it wasn't still painful. It just meant that all of her attention was not on the pain anymore. Each of us rises to the occasion. You, you will know what to do or not to do. Sometimes you just sit there and do nothing and breathe with that person. The more experience you have of allowing yourself to not know, the more you can actually be there and be present with that person. Diana gave me the greatest gift that one human being can give another. She allowed me to be there with her during what is the most private time of our life. She shared her dying with me. Her parents allowed me in. Her sister allowed me in. This is a gift. And two weeks ago, I was giving this same talk at IMC in Mountain View. And lo and behold, who should walk up to me at the beginning of the talk, before I've even opened my mouth? Diana's father. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. We had grown very close during this time. And I looked at him and I said, Ed, I was going to talk about Diana tonight, but how would that be for you? Oh, he said, I would be so happy if you did. It was the most amazing evening. Because there were things he was hearing about, like my aversion, that of course he never knew about at the time. And then he shared some things at the end of the talk. It was no coincidence. There are no coincidences. It was time for us to reconnect, it was time for us to share about this very significant time. I would bet if I asked for a show of hands right now that three quarters of you have someone in your life that is dying or is very ill with a possibly life-threatening illness. Either a family member, a friend, even an acquaintance. (coughs) But I would also bet that not so many of you have actually been present 
at the moment of death. It is not a common experience, it turns out. And it should be. It is something that we all should be present at as much as possible. So I will tell you about the second one. This is a short one I'm going to share. Of another friend of mine whose husband was dying. This person was about my age, maybe a little younger. And unlike Diana, who was 12, he had had a life. But he had also had some knowledge of what a normal lifespan could be and some expectation that he was going to have that lifespan. And so this person was very angry. He had colon cancer. And he had had remission the first time after chemo, but then it came back. And he was furious. Not in the sense of yelling and screaming, but in the way he held himself, in the way he did not let anyone in, including his wife. Just everybody held at bay. His dying was not easy. I can say that. Diana died getting softer and softer. She was still young enough to be able to let go fairly easily. She didn't want to die, but when she realized it was inevitable and that was where it was going, she began to get very soft and very sweet. And as her father said the other night, she was not exactly a cuddly young woman. She was not one of these little girls who's always wanting to be hugged or, you know, held by Papa or anything. But he said that by the end, she had completely changed. But this man got more and more distant, more and more abrupt, was unwilling to have conversations. That was a very hard one for me because, again, it's what am I going to do? How am I going to make this connection? I had a strong connection with his wife, but it was really quite difficult. And that's going to happen, too. You are, you are going to be at the dying process of somebody who does not want to die. And that's another kind of practice opportunity. To not turn away. Even from that. The third death, though, that I want to share with you was probably the most remarkable one that I have been privileged to witness to be a part of. I have spoken before of my other Zen teacher who was my tea ceremony teacher, Peg Anderson. When I met Peg, she was already 77. And she was still kneeling on the floor for tea ceremony. She had been a kindergarten teacher. And uh, She still collected and and held on to every little scrap of everything, just like she would have when she was teaching kindergartners. 
for art projects or whatever, but her house was full of this stuff by the end. (laughs) But in order to understand Peg's death, you have to at least have a vignette of her life. As I say, she was already an older woman by the time I, as a 29-year-old, came into her life. It never dawned on me that a 29-year-old and a 77-year-old could have a friendship, you know, maybe a sort of granddaughter-grandmotherly relationship, but not a friendship. But that is not what happened. Peg and I did become friends, very close friends, <laughs> to the point that I'll, I'll never forget how surprised I was one day when we were sitting on her sofa and she started telling me about her difficulties with her boyfriend, <laughs> who was... 75 at the time. (laughs) A younger man, yes. And that was when I realized we weren't granddaughter and grandmother anymore. (laughs) There were so many wonderful examples that I could give you, but there's one in particular, and I may have shared it before, but forgive me if I repeat it. It's, It's so quintessential to who she was. Peg really was a connoisseur of tea ceremony and the things involved in it. And she had a pile, I mean literally a whole cabinet, they were just stacked, of tea bowls. And some were not very special. Others she had bought at Japantown. And then there were a few that were antiques. And there was one tea bowl that was 300 years old. It was very shallow. It was almost more like a serving plate. So it was meant for summer tea. When you whisk it, you want most of the heat to go away. And so it's a very open bowl. It was Korean. And you could see how it had been fired. Uh, They all stacked inside of each other. And so the glaze uh, was stuck to the footing of the bowl that was sitting on top of the next bowl. And I I don't quite know how they got them apart. But in this bowl, you could actually see the, little, the five little feet from the bowl that had been sitting above it. Somehow they got it off without breaking the bowl. So this was a very, this was probably her most um, expensive and uh, valuable tea bowl. So I think on this one day, uh, I was alone. Uh, often it was the case that, you know, only one of us could show up on a Thursday afternoon. And I remember on this day, it was just me. And I served the tea and she watched and we commented. And then afterwards, it was time for me to take the tea things into the kitchen to clean up. And I had already taken out um, this tea bowl, which that day she had served um, the sweets in. We hadn't used it as a tea bowl. And I had taken it out, and it was a little sticky because the sweets are what's called yokan, and it's a red bean with sugar, very sticky stuff, but very yummy. It's my dog's favorite treat. <laughs> he got into it one day. This is not good. So I took this bowl out, and she had a big uh, metal sink, uh, no divider in it. And I put the bowl in one corner to wash it. And then... Uh, In the tea room, there's what's called a brazier. It's very heavy, made out of iron. And the bottom portion 
um, traditionally used to have charcoal in it, and then you would place another metal um, bowl on top of it. And you would light the charcoal, and the heat would rise, and the metal bowl on top is where the water was, and it would heat it. Well, in this day and age, we don't use charcoal because you would asphyxiate yourself. But there's a little metal burner. So the water had been boiling in the top part, and it comes off with two little rings that you hold. So I had carried that out to the kitchen and set it on the edge of the metal sink. In the center of the bowl, there's a lid about this big. I had taken the lid off and set it also on the edge of the sink. And then there's a way to take those two rings and you can flip the metal uh, brazier part over to empty out the water into the sink. But being this person who liked to save everything, she even liked to save the water that had been boiling in the kettle. So she asked us always to take the teapot off of her stove, put it in the sink, and pour the hot water back into that teapot, which required a little bit more skill. But So anyway, I had put the teapot in the sink. I had gone to flip over the metal brazier to empty the water and apparently knocked the little lid from where it was sitting into the sink. It rolled around the sink and came to rest right at the edge of the tea bowl and broke off a piece about that big in two little tiny pieces. It was one of those moments where you're just, oh no, you can't believe you have just done this incredibly careless thing. Because I was not a beginning tea student at this moment. I'd probably been practicing with her at least 10 years. There's nothing to be done. You, you have to go in and tell her. But again, you know, aversion is coming up. I don't want to tell her. Oh, my God, she's going to hate me. She's going to yell at me. She's going to tell me I can't come back anymore. Whatever. All these thoughts arise. So I picked up the bowl and the two little pieces. And I went in and I said, Peg, I have something really terrible to tell you. She looked up. What? And I held out the bowl and I said, I am so sorry. I have broken the bowl. And I'm sure that I can glue these little pieces back together, but I know it will never be the same. And she took the bowl and kind of looked at it for a while. And then she handed it back to me and she said, Well, these things happen. That moment is emblazoned in my brain. I hear her voice. I see her. I know what she was even wearing that day. Because in that moment, she said everything that you need to know. There is only one thing that is important in this life or in this death. And that is relationship. Things do not matter. Fame is fleeting. No matter what you are doing right now, there is nothing that is more important in your life than relationship. 
whether it's to each other, to the earth, to the job at hand. And that is what she understood. Yes, this was a very valuable bowl, and she loved this bowl, and I'm sure that she was sad about it. But she chose in that moment her relationship with me as the most important thing. She forgave me. And we went on. And it is also no coincidence that when she decided what to give away at her death, I was the recipient of that bowl. (laughs) So now I can tell you about her death. Peg spent a long time dying. She gave it up by millimeters. She was 93 when she finally died. And she was very ready to go. She had been ready for a year. At 92, she told me, well, I'm ready to go now. I'm getting too weak. I can't do anything. I want to die. Unfortunately, we all forgot that she'd had a pacemaker put in. And once it's in, you cannot legally remove it. And you just have to wait for the pacemaker to wear out. And it wasn't wearing out. So she got weaker and weaker, and her son lived in Hawaii. So he couldn't be there very much. And so we T students took it on very happily. We had a debt of gratitude that no amount of time would have taken care of. They did bring in uh, care 24 hours a day, uh, but those people needed time out too. So every afternoon for six months, I was at her house, and sometimes other people would come. And every time I came, if she was awake, big smile, always so happy to see me. In the beginning, she could still talk to me. We would have little conversations. She would even try to get up. Eventually, even that was not possible. She very much wanted to die in her own home, though. And so I very much wanted to make that happen for her. So as I said earlier, it often is not the individual who's dying that is the only difficulty. It's everyone else. Two months before she died, She pretty much had stopped having any interest in food. And both her son and one of my fellow tea students were convinced this was just because we weren't giving her interesting enough food. And we had to get her strong again. And we had to give her different food and we had to make sure she ate it. I was a little flummoxed by this. I certainly did not want to get in the way between Peg and her son. But Peg was not eating on purpose. So we tried his way for a while, and then he went back to Hawaii. 
And then we let Peg do what she wanted to again. When it became clear that she was getting into some pain, hospice decided it was time for morphine. And I had never been responsible for something like that up until that moment. Even with Diana, because she was in the care of Stanford Hospital, I never had to handle medication. And the other man was in the Veterans Hospital. So this was the first time that I was actually involved in that level of her care. Because there's a moral decision that gets made at this time. I was stunned to find out that once they prescribe morphine, just the kind that goes under the tongue, you could just go pick it up at the pharmacy. They didn't even know who I was. I handed them the prescription. They handed me the morphine. I was very surprised. And then you have to go home to your friend And you have to make a decision. How much morphine? She wants to die. How much morphine? How do I know when she's really out of pain? How is she going to tell me this? It's very tricky business. And again, you don't know. You won't know. You will have to allow your practice to tell you. It will. You will know what to do. The first time that I gave the morphine to Peg, I remember her face lying sideways on the bed, looking up at me, her little eyes watering a little bit, but a tiny little smile. And she opened up her mouth for me. She knew what I had. She was telling me in her own way, yes, I want it. After that, it was a little easier. You never know if you are actually going to be able to be present at the moment of death. I missed Diana's but her mother was there. I missed the man's because he chose to die at four in the morning. My arm was, my hand was on his arm and his wife was in the bed next to him and he deliberately chose to go, I think, when no one was aware. But Peg, having practiced meditation all her, you know, for the last 45 years of her life, She knew how to do it, and she wanted me to be there. That is a moment unlike any other. I've seen it with my dog. I saw it one time with a little squirrel who died in my hands. But I have never before seen it with a human. I can't describe it. It's a gift. There is something about life and death in that moment. 
But it is also so clear afterwards when you are washing the body, when you are talking to her and to each other, when you are dressing her in her favorite clothes, that you realize this is not your friend. This is a body. But your friend is now absolutely and completely in here. This is the fundamental truth of practice, of meditation, of the spiritual life. That there is no such thing as you, in whatever way you think of it. There is no you that is fixed, permanent, that you can point to day after day and say, yes, this is Misha. Part of me is Peg. How could it be otherwise? I spent so much time with her. Part of me is my father. Part of me is my mother. Part of me are my sister and brothers. Part of me is each one of you here today. Part of me is every child I have ever taught at Peninsula School, and part of me is every staff member I have ever taught with. Every single relationship of your life becomes who you are. And so there is a body. And out of respect, you wash it. And you clothe it. And you send it off with blessings. But there is really no death. It just transforms. So, the last thing I'd like to read to you is probably my all-time favorite lecture by Suzuki Roshi about this very topic. He visits Yosemite National Park and sees the big waterfall. I went to Yosemite National Park and I saw some huge waterfalls. The highest one there is 1,340 feet high. And from it, the water comes down like a curtain thrown from the top of the mountain. It does not seem to come down swiftly as you might expect. It seems to come down very slowly because of the distance. And the water does not come down as one stream, but is separated into many tiny streams. But from a distance, it looks like a curtain. And I thought, it must be a very difficult experience for each drop of water to come down from the top of such a high mountain. It takes time, you know, a long time, for the water finally to reach the bottom of the waterfall. And it seems to me that our human life may be like this. We have many difficult experiences in our life. But at the same time, I thought, the water was not originally separated, but was one whole river. Only when it is separated does it have some difficulty in falling. 
It is as if the water does not have any feeling when it is one whole river. Only when separated into many drops can it begin to have or express some feeling. When we see one whole river, we do not feel the living activity of the water. But when we dip a part of the water into a dipper, we experience some feeling of the water. And we also feel the value of the person who uses the water. Feeling ourselves and the water in this way, we cannot use it in just a material way. It is a living thing. Before we were born, we had no feeling. We were one with the universe. This is called mind only or big mind. After we are separated by birth from this oneness, as the water falling from the waterfall is separated by the wind and rocks, then we have feeling. And you have difficulty because you have feeling. You attach to the feeling. You have without knowing just how this kind of feeling is created. When you do not realize that you are one with the river or one with the universe, you have fear. Whether it is separated into drops or not, water is water. Our life and death are the same thing. When we realize this fact, we have no fear of death anymore. And we have no actual difficulty in our life. When the water returns to its original oneness with the river, it no longer has any individual feeling to it. It resumes its own nature and finds composure. How very glad the water must be to come back to the original river. I encourage each and every one of you, do not turn away from those who are seriously ill or who are dying. Do not think that you don't know them well enough or that you wouldn't know what to do or what letter to write. Always come from that calm, equanimous place of your meditation and step forward. It's okay to stand at the door and have all that aversion arise, all that uncertainty. But go ahead and walk through the second door anyway. May spring and the new year bring you many, many blessings. Thank you.